Good morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us. It's great to see you all this morning. My name is Jason Averill. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And uh, again, it's a pleasure to worship the resurrection of our Lord with you this morning. So today, we are going to be looking at uh, the reactions to the resurrection from Luke chapter 24. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, shortly after the fall, in the pronouncement of the curse, Lord, you pronounced a prophecy. You told Adam and Eve, and you told the serpent that there was someone coming, someone who would crush the head of the serpent. It's the first gospel that you gave, the first good news that though sin and death were now in the world, that you were sending somebody to make it right. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for not abandoning your creation at its sin, but instead, but instead making a way for us. Jesus, we praise you that in the fullness of time, some 2,000 years ago, you came and you lived the perfect life and died the death on the cross, thereby crushing Satan's head. And that three days later, you raised to life again. And as you raised to life, so you will raise us to life. Thank you. Holy Spirit, you empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry. And you are the one that is now living in our breaths, uniting us with our great and glorious Savior. We do pray that you move in this sanctuary, that you illumine us, illumine our hearts, illumine our minds, and direct us see our great and glorious Savior. Amen. All right, so just this past week, we had our Good Friday service. And in the Good Friday service, we read the accounts of Jesus's last day on earth before the crucifixion. And we saw him going into the ground, into the tomb, and the stone was rolled over it and then the Sabbath came. And on that Saturday, that had to have been about the darkest day in all of history for the disciples. But let's back up just a little bit. Jesus came on the scene about three years ago. About three years previous to that. And he came on the scene ministering like no one had ever done before. He came on ministering in power and with authority. And he performed powerful miracles. In fact, just a few weeks before he was crucified, he performed an amazing miracle where he raised Lazarus from the grave. He got word that from Mary and Martha that his friend, their brother, Lazarus, was sick and would soon die. And so, what did he do? He delayed for two days, and then he went to Bethany. It's weird that he delayed. 
but he wanted to make sure that people understood that Lazarus was completely dead. And when he got there, he talked to Martha. And Martha was distraught, of course. And he said, your brother will rise again. And she said, I know, Lord. I know he'll rise again at the last day in the resurrection. And he said to her, I am the resurrection. I am the life. People who die, if they believe in me, though they die, they will yet live. And then just a few weeks later, he was going into Jerusalem and he was hailed as a king. People shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And they threw out palm branches in front of him. They greeted him as the Messiah. And then, just a few days later, they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And he was put to death on the cross. And imagine, if you will, that you were in Jerusalem at this time. Imagine that you had been there when the crowds greeted him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and that you were there when he was crucified, and that now, three days later, maybe a week later, now you're hearing this hubbub going around Jerusalem that he is risen. He is risen. And people are like, do you believe he rose? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Do you believe in the resurrection? It's an important question. It's probably the most important question. And it's impossible to have a neutral stance on it. You either believe in the resurrection or you don't. You don't get the luxury of just saying, I don't know, because as soon as you say, I don't know, you're saying that you don't believe it. No, it's an important question, the most important question. And it's with this question that we turn to our text today. Our text... This morning is from Luke chapter 24. We're going to read the first part of it now. It's verses 1 through 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, that is the women, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were, were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. It stands forever. 
let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. Do you believe in the resurrection? It sounds too good to be true. And things that sound too good to be true usually are, aren't they? Do you believe in the resurrection? This morning we'll look at three things from the passage. We'll look at reactions to the news of the resurrection. We'll look at what convinced people of the reality of the resurrection. And we'll look at what the resurrection means for them and for us. So reactions to the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, and the meaning of the resurrection. Sorry, I couldn't get the alliteration all the way there. I just two R's. So how did people in the Gospels react to the resurrection? Well, in Luke here, we see three groups of people. We see the women who went to the tomb. And in Mark, we're given just a little bit more info. Here, they see that Jesus' body isn't there. And the angels announce to them that he is risen. And then they go and tell the disciples. In Mark, he tells about this intervening thing that happened. That when they were confronted by the angels, they were actually afraid. They were terrified. And they went away frightened. And it wasn't until Jesus showed up and met them that they believed and worshipped him. And then they went to the disciples. So how did the women believe? The women believed because they met Jesus. They saw proof of the resurrection. Now... The next group of people are, of course, the disciples. When they hear of the resurrection from, from the women, what do they say? They say, oh, that's, that's a good story right there. But no, no. People don't come back from the dead. Those are idle tales. I don't know why you're saying it, but it can't be true. It's too good to be true. And that's what the disciples thought. That's how they initially reacted. Again, the women disbelieved, and then they believed when they were confronted by Jesus. The disciples disbelieved. Now, Peter, though, he actually ran to the tomb. And in John, we get, a, we get just a little bit more information. It's not just Peter running to the tomb. It's John running to the tomb as well. And John gets there first, but he can't go in. He does, he's not brave enough to go in. But Peter just rushes in, sees the linen cloths that are folded neat and nicely at the head of the stone. And he goes away marveling. But we're not told that he believes. And it's odd because in John, the Gospel of John, John goes into the tomb after Peter. And it says that Peter went away marveling, but John believed. So Peter went away not even knowing what to think. And in fact, it's not until later on in Luke that we're told that he met the risen Jesus. And that's when he believed. And so, what was Peter's reaction? It's disbelief. It's too good to be true. I can't believe it. He didn't know what to think. And there are other people here in, in the story. They're not mentioned here in Luke, but... We have, you know, the guards that were put on the tomb. 
Okay, In Matthew, we see them. They've been placed on the tomb for fear that the disciples would come and steal the body. And when they saw the angels, they were struck like they were dead. They passed out. And then when they woke up, Jesus' body was gone. And they ran and they told the chief priests. And they said, listen what's happened. And the chief priest called a council. And the council said, well, just tell people that the disciples came and stole the body and that you fell asleep. Yeah, it's fine. We'll, we'll protect you from any fallout from that. They heard about the resurrection and immediately disbelieved. Even though the guards had seen the angels, they disbelieved. Idle tales. A little bit later on in Luke, we see two uh, believers that are on the road to Emmaus, two disciples, and Jesus meets them, but they're kept from recognizing him. And they tell him, haven't you heard about the things that have happened about Jesus of Nazareth, who supposedly raised from the dead? And we don't know what to think. Again, disbelief. And Thomas, of course, is the famous, the famous doubter. Thomas says, he, even though he hears the tale from the other disciples, from the women, he says, I will not believe until I touch the wounds on him. I'm not going to believe it. It's too good to be true. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to realize that everybody, everybody, except maybe John, disbelieved at first. Everybody thought it was too good to be true. Well, I think it's important to realize because like C.S. Lewis said, we have this chronological snobbery that's just pervasive in all of our culture, all of Western culture, in which we hear tales about things in the Bible and we say, well, you know, People back then, they just believed that stuff. They just believed that people could come back from the dead. So, of course, when they wrote it down, people believed. But no. No. That isn't so. In fact, everybody in this story knew for sure that once you were dead, you were dead. There was no coming back. No coming back. And so, N.T. Wright, you know, he, he wrote this great historical tome called The Resurrection of the Son of God. If you are at all into academia or history, I suggest that you read it. It's like 800 pages. So, you know, don't just wade into it. You have to dive in full in. But he's exploring this question from a historical standpoint. The question of whether or not Jesus raised from the dead... And he comes to this conclusion at the end of his section. Did people just believe that things like this could happen? He systematically proved for several chapters that nobody did. And he says, the fact that dead people do not ordinarily rise is itself part of early Christian belief. Not an objection to it. Hear that again. The fact that dead people do not ordinarily rise is itself part of early Christian belief, not an objection to it. 
that's part of what the Bible says. The early Christians, he says, insisted that what had happened to Jesus was precisely something new, was indeed the start of a whole new mode of existence, a new creation. The fact that Jesus' resurrection was and remains without analogy is not an objection to the early Christian claim. It is a part of the claim itself. It's important to realize that people in the Old Testament time, the New Testament time, people always knew, always knew that people didn't come back from the dead. Now, you know, how then did the people in the, Old, in the New Testament here come to believe? What convinces people of the reality of the resurrection? Well, let's look at a little bit further on in the chapter, starting in verse 28. He's talking about uh, the believers, uh, the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, and they met Jesus. Starting in 28, it says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened, the script, opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. What convinced the disciples on the road to Emmaus? They met Jesus. They saw him. They had the evidence. And they had faith. They had the evidence. And they had trust in the Lord. Let's look a little bit farther. And they found that the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And so... Simon, that is Peter, has gone, gone to the disciples. They are in this locked room, and he's gone to them. And when he gets there, he says, I've seen the Lord. He has risen. He went from marveling, astonished, wondering what to believe, to being for sure definite that Jesus had risen. How? Because he had seen Jesus. He had evidence, and he had faith. The women, how did they believe? The same way they were confronted by the risen Lord and they had faith. Mary Magdalene, the same way, meets with Jesus and he calls her name. And when he calls her name, she recognizes his voice and she believes because she has evidence and faith. And Thomas is the same way. In fact, when Jesus confronts Thomas, he doesn't even touch Jesus. 
according to the text. Jesus says, see, here I am. See my wounds, touch them. But we're not told that Thomas touches them. We're told that he says, my Lord and my God, he sees Jesus. Evidence and faith. And so again and again and again, it's the same thing. And after Jesus ascended, how did people in the New Testament believe? We go to Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, he's preaching to the Jews And he tells them, you've heard all of the tales, and you've seen the miracles. And in fact, we're doing miracles among you. You're witnessing one right now in Pentecost. People are speaking in tongues, in languages that they don't even know, and you're hearing them in your own tongue. This is because Jesus was Lord. You crucified him, and God raised him up. Evidence and faith. And it's the same with Paul on the road to Damascus. It's the same for all the early Christians. Why did they believe? They believed because of the miracles that the apostles were doing and because they knew people, knew people that had witnessed the risen Savior. Over 500 people Jesus visited, we're told. And they knew them. And they had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They had evidence. And they had faith. Say, okay, Jason, I understand. I understand. But how are people convinced today? How do we know that Jesus actually raised from the dead? How do we know this isn't just a myth that was written down in the Bible some time ago? Well, in that same way evidence, and faith. So, people like to think that there probably isn't very much evidence that Jesus rose from the dead at all. But time after time, people have evaluated the evidence and come to the exact opposite conclusion. Take Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, he has a law degree, and he's also an investigative journalist, and he was an atheist, and he researched the claims of Christianity and became convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was raised from the dead. There's a guy named J. Warner Wallace. He, he probably isn't known to a lot of you, but J. Warner Wallace is an interesting guy because he was a cold case detective. He was a police detective that exclusively worked cold cases, and he went to church one day, And he heard the gospel preached. And when he heard the gospel preached, he started thinking, you know what? What we just read there, that's an eyewitness account. That's actually just like the eyewitness accounts that I deal with every day in my job. And you know what? I bet I can evaluate the gospels and find out what really happens. Because I know that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead because people don't come back from the dead. And so he started evaluating them, trying to prove them wrong. And then he would get to things that seemed like complete non sequiturs that people would point to, well, you know, that was just put in by later Christians. Like Jesus at the Feast of Booths saying that he was the light of the world. It's like, that's just people 
writing back into the text. I wonder why they have Jesus say that, though. And he explores it, and what does he come to? He comes to the historical fact that in Jerusalem, the Feast of Booths was celebrating their time, the Israelites' time in the desert. And every year when they celebrate it, they put up these huge pillars. And during the day, they'd be burning incense on the pillars and the smoke would go up. And it would be representing the pillar of smoke that was with them in the desert, the presence of God. And at night, it would be huge torches going up, lighting the world being a visible representation of the pillar of fire that went with them in the desert. And so when Jesus was saying, I am the light of the world, he's pointing to those pillars and he's claiming that he's God. And all of a sudden, something that would have been a non sequitur, that would have been written back into the text to him, becomes conclusive. No. This really happened, and Jesus did really make that claim. N.T. Wright, the person that uh, I just quoted before, wrote the uh, resurrection of the Son of God. Toward the end of his book, the next to the last, the end of the chapter next to the last one, um, he says this, and he's a historian by trade. The standard alternative theories have been ruled out explicitly or implicitly and we have made our way as we have made our way through this book the common idea that when the early Christians said Jesus was raised from the dead they meant something like he is alive in a spiritual non-bodily sense and we give him our allegiance as lord that is historically impossible the suggestion that Paul's view of the resurrection had nothing at all to do with what we think of as the body, has been shown to be exegetically unfounded. The widespread belief that the resurrection accounts in the Gospels are back projections of Christian belief from the middle to the late first century simply will not work. These are the major counterproposals, the main ways in which over the last century or so, the inference to the best explanation has been avoided. The claim can be stated once more in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. The actual bodily resurrection of Jesus, not a mere resuscitation, but a transforming revivication, clearly provides a sufficient condition for the tomb being empty and the meetings taking place. Nobody is likely to doubt that. Once grant that Jesus really was raised and all the pieces of the historical jigsaw puzzle of the early Christianity fall into place, but my claim is stronger than that. That the bodily resurrection of Jesus provides a necessary condition for these things. In other words, that no other explanation could or would do. And all efforts to find alternative explanations fail. As they were bound to do. He looks at the historical evidence and he says all of the historical evidence points to the resurrection of Jesus. You have no way to explain the origins of the Christian faith without the resurrection. And by faith, he believes. So, with all this, 
What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus has raised from the dead? Why is this so important? So I draw you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This is Paul speaking about the resurrection. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the, de- of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, even, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, And you are still in your sins. And then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What does Paul say there? Why is the resurrection important? The resurrection is important because it legitimizes Christ's claims while he was on earth, while he had his ministry. The resurrection means that when he claimed to be the Son of God, it was true. It means that when he claimed to be the sacrifice and the satisfaction for sin and for the wrath of God, then that was true. And if he wasn't raised, then it's not. And we're still in our sins. The the resurrection makes the atonement ratified. It's God's raising Jesus up in accepting the sacrifice. It's also how we recognize him as the son of God. More than that, more than that, in Romans 5, Paul says that Christ is the new Adam, that through the old Adam... Into the world came sin and death. And through the new Adam, the new and better Adam, came forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. And then further on in Romans, he says that if Christ is raised, then we are raised with him to newness of life. So we have life now, new life now, and life in the future. We have a promise, a promise of our bodily resurrection in his bodily resurrection. A promise that we will be with Christ in eternity forever. It means that death has been defeated. As we'll soon read in our confession of faith, death has been defeated. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It has no power of it over us anymore if we believe in the resurrection. There can be no threatenings to us. None. Because if we believe in the resurrection, if we believe in Christ, then we know that we too will be raised. 
It means that Satan has been defeated, that Jesus struck that death blow on the cross, that he crushed Satan's head on the cross, and the resurrection confirms that it was struck, that Satan is defeated. I'd point you back to our assurance of pardon. Christ has been raised. There is now no condemnation. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? And now, because of his resurrection, we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, empowering us. And we can walk in newness of life because of his resurrection. We walk as a new creation. Not perfect. But we go with the power and the glory of Christ. It's a lot. It's too good to be true. And yet it's true. It's too good to be true. But all the evidence says that it is. And it's a glorious thing. As you leave here today, don't skip by this. You know, if you're here today and you don't believe in the resurrection or you're not sure, you're on the fence, examine the evidence. If you need help in that, just contact me, contact Wilson, any of the elders. Examine the evidence and pray that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and opens your heart to believe. Because the Holy Spirit will do that. If you ask, he will do that. He will answer you. The reason why you are asking is because you are already a child of God. You just don't know it. If you're here and you already do believe in the resurrection, make that belief and make your faith stronger. Read about the resurrection. Read about the evidence. Preach it to yourself. Because Satan is prowling around. And he is ready to try to steal that joy from you. A friend of mine. We'll call him Bobby. That's not his name. But he's an RUF campus minister. Or he was. And then he was a church planter. And a couple of years after he planted his church. He, he got a call. And it was from his mom. And he said... Bobby, your brother has died. Your brother has died. Can you come and preach the funeral? And so Bobby went to go preach the funeral. And he told me that as he was putting his brother into the grave, as he watched the casket go in, he had the thought, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that I'm going to see my brother again? And he was a strong believer, and Satan attacked him right there. And fortunately, whatever Satan means for evil for believers, God turns it to good. And God did that for Bobby then. He actually deepened his faith, deepened his faith in the resurrection and in Christ. But do that on the front end so that when Satan attacks, you don't fall for it. Finally, proclaim 
this great gospel truth to the world. This is what we are sent to do. This is what the Great Commission is all about. We are to go out into the world and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We celebrate that in the Lord's Supper every week when we do it. And we proclaim to the world that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised to newness of life. And because of that, because of that, everything is changed. Everything is different. And I know that going out and preaching the gospel, telling people that you believe in the words of Paul with the the Gentiles consider foolishness and a stumbling block for the Jews. That that's super hard. It's uncomfortable. You don't like to be thought of as one of those people. But no, you don't go out in your own power. You go out in the power of the risen one. You go out in the power of Jesus because he is dwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. You go out in the power of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You go out in the power of the Prince of Peace whose reign is now and whose government and of peace there will be no end. You go out in the name of Jesus Christ, whose name at <clears throat> every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Amen. He is risen. Let us pray. Father, it's too good to be true, and yet it is. Too good to be true, and yet it is. Lord, we do ask that as we meditate on the resurrection, that you convince us at deeper and deeper levels every hour of every day. Do you not let us forget it? And know that the belief in the resurrection, this, this is what makes us Christian. This is what makes us your people. That if we believe in the resurrection and confess Jesus as Lord, that is what makes us a Christian. Keep that hope alive in us. Jesus, we thank you not only for raising to life, but also for dying on the cross. For that great exchange of our sin for your righteousness. We thank you for the gift that you've given us in our comforter and our friend, the Holy Spirit who lives in us and binds us to you. Holy Spirit, we pray, keep our eyes firmly fixed on our Savior.